Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. Almighty God, you have revealed yourself to us through your prophets, through your holy word, and through the advent of your perfect son. Help us now to see your glory and love through the reading and preaching of your word. In Christ our Savior we pray. Amen. Now please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading from Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. It is a long reading, but I'd ask you to stay standing if you can. If you need to sit, that's fine. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have given us a way to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. 
the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the, she- on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I have vivid memories from childhood of minding my own business, watching cartoons on Nickelodeon. When about 6 p.m. at night, just as the sky had gone completely dark in a Michigan winter, these creepy sounds would begin to play. And, and you'd see ominous scenes of creaking swings and, uh, and, and you'd hear children laughing in an attic only to, in an attic only to see a, a camera shot that pans across to this creepy clown doll's face and then right then it culminated with a lit match illuminating the words are you afraid of the dark where are my millennials at come on my 80s babies know what I'm talking about and it was even it was even better the match then was extinguished leaving you the viewer in the dark brilliant and brutal for children right I mean it's Nickelodeon And so at this moment, I would get up and I would run across the house with adrenaline pumping through my veins to find my sister because I wouldn't dare watch it alone and see if she would watch it with me. Now, Are You Afraid of the Dark was this horror series on Nickelodeon, which should be an oxymoron, but it it was there, uh, that played in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, Some of you may have seen it, others of you clearly haven't. Uh, But with that, the title of the show asks a good question. And I want to ask the question, why are we afraid of the dark? I'm going to give you, here's my deep and profound answer. Because we can't see. We're afraid of the dark because we can't see. This is actually a big deal. You see, there's there's scientists who study animal behavior, and and they've shown that different animals, different particular organisms have uh, sensory equipment that enables them to navigate the world differently. Okay, so just think about this. Dolphins and bats, they have echolocation. We don't have that. Uh, Sharks have um, some receptors on their nose in order to pick up little uh, tiny electric fields, changes in electric fields in the water. Human beings can see. Sight is our most important sense. Now, besides birds of prey, we surpass almost every animal in the animal kingdom with our vision. 
uh, processing visual images takes up about 50% of our brain's cortex's processing power. Men and women and children, human beings were made to see. Our sight is our primary sense. And so this matters because when we get into the dark, we can't see and it terrifies us. It conjures up fear in us. But I, but I want you to hear me say something here that is, I don't just mean darkness in the literal sense. I also mean it in the metaphorical sense. It, just the fact that darkness is a symbol for uncertainty and doubt and the unknown and even evil and death. The fact that darkness is a symbol of those things is because of our primal fear of it. And so I mean both literally and symbolically, we find ourselves afraid of the dark. And we live in a day when the unknown, the uncertain, the evil, and death, uh, it it surrounds us. And and that's not new. But what is new is we're exposed to it at record levels in the history of humanity because of social media. And so we live in a culture of fear, of age, of anxiety, if you will. I'm just give you one stat to, to back that up. Um, It's been said, you've probably heard this before, that the average high school student today has the same anxiety levels of a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Think about that for a moment. We live in the age of anxiety. Fear is all around us. And so if you are afraid, what do you do with your fear? That's what I'm going to look at this morning. So if you have a Bible or a device, get to Exodus 14, turn it on, open it up, get it in front of you. Because I want to see how this ancient text applies to our modern maladies. I want to see what we do with our fear. And we're going to look at that under three points. The first one is fearless at dusk. The second one is fearful in the dark. And the third one is fearsome at dawn. Now I get this language of dusk and dark and dawn from the text itself. In verse 19, it uses the language of all night. In verse 24, it says in the morning watch. That's that's between 2 a.m. and and 6 a.m. And then in verse 27, it says when the morning appeared. That's dawn. So, So there's... The Spirit of God does not waste his breath when he inspires Scripture. And, and so there's this brilliant literary subtlety that's happening here. If you pay close attention, Exodus 14 happens over the course from dusk to dawn. That's when this whole event actually takes place. And so that's where I get my points from. Let's look at fearless at dusk. In, in verses 1 and 2, uh, Yahweh is guiding his people Israel in the wilderness. And I told you last week when we looked at Exodus 13 that the Lord leads those he loves into the wilderness. Time and time again, this happens. And in verses four through, I'm sorry, three through seven, Yahweh seems to be setting a trap for Pharaoh. Why? Well, in verse four, we get the purpose clause right here. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And if you've been with us, you know this is a refrain throughout the story of Exodus. It's very, very important. So we're going to come back to it in a little bit. But, but where do I get this language of Israel being fearless at dusk? Well, look at verse 8 with me. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. There's this fearlessness, this bold rebelliousness. Now, in Hebrew, the, the word there is actually a phrase that means high-handedly. And, and throughout the whole Old Testament, except for maybe one other place, it's always a bad thing. So I'm actually not convinced that because they're going out defiantly, that, that's actually saying something good about Israel. And this is what I mean. Um, they're marching out of the world's known superpower with all of their gold. They're feeling pretty good about themselves. Like they have, 
They are defiant of Pharaoh, but that does not mean that they're confident in Yahweh yet. And we're going to see that in a moment. Because this quickly evaporates, this defiance, this boldness, this fearlessness at dusk quickly evaporates. And, and so my, this is my shortest point in the sermon because uh, it's the, their fearlessness doesn't last very long. So on to point two. And I wish the rest of the sermon I could say goes that far, but the text is too good and I'm just not good enough of a preacher to get it short and sweet like this. So let's look at the second point, which is fearful in the dark. Look at verse 10 with me. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold. Notice that sight language. Lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. So they go from fearless at dusk to now fearful in the dark. Um, It's not completely dark yet, but by the end of this section, it will be dark. And, And so notice the verbs for how fear works. You see what happens just in that one verse. The threat comes into view. They see the threat, and that produces fear. Sight and fear are connected. Sight and fear are connected. And so they look behind them, and they find Egypt pursuing them. They look in front of them, and they see the Red Sea. They are pinched. They're squeezed. And so it says in the text, they feared greatly. They're looking around. They're seeing this. And so they're trapped between the cursed nature of the Red Sea and the corrupt culture of the Egyptians. This is where they're stuck between. Or or you could say it this way. They're pinned between the rigid past of slavery in Egypt and the chaotic future represented by the waters of the Red Sea. And so I just submit to you, I think this text, if you, if you read it this way, you understand that I don't know of any of our fears that don't come from nature, culture, the past, or the future. And they're pinned right there in this moment. And so they fear greatly. That's what the text says. And so one of the things I want to I look at is, well, what do they do in their fear? They blame Big Mo. What else would they do? Look at verse 11 with me. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? You see, blame has followed fear since the garden. You remember Genesis 3? The Lord comes looking for Adam. Adam, where are you? He says, I was afraid, so I hid. Well, who told you you were naked? Why were you afraid? And and immediately he goes, this woman that you gave to me, You see how fear flows into blame? It's so helpful to me. Don't we just, don't you see yourself in the people of Israel? It's so helpful, the portrait that's painted for us. This is the people of God. These are the people that God is working redemption on behalf of. And and don't you find yourself in their place? So, So a question that I would have for you is, in your fear, who do you blame? In your fear, where do you point the finger? In your anxiety, who do you target? We are, when we feel fear, we, we find a scapegoat. And, you know, this is, this is very true. You, just, you look in the news, you look in churches, you look all over the place. The best scapegoat is often your leaders. Because it's really easy for us to project our problems onto them. That's what they do to Moses here. They go on. Verse 12, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? For the record, read through Exodus, they never said this. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Slavery is nice. Goes on, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This might be the first recorded case of Stockholm Syndrome in the history of humanity. I don't know. And so they're blaming Moses. They're somehow bonded with the Egyptians. What is happening right now? 
Fear does strange things to us. But let me just ask you this. Have you ever tried to quit an addiction? And then you find yourself thinking fondly of what that addiction did for you in the past. Have you ever found yourself um, forgetting that that substance or that person or that thing, whatever it is that you turn to in your addiction, you forget that it over time demanded more and more and more and gave less and less and less. You forget that so quickly. You forget all about the tyranny, the slavery. You forget all about the, the torment of what it was like to be trapped in that addiction once you're out of it. And so all you re- remember are the good vibes. You remember what it was like to have all your troubles melted away when you turned to your addiction of choice. Something like that I think is happening here with Israel. They're in this point of fear and they, they remember fondly what had happened. And, and so what I think this says to us is that the human heart is willing to rewrite history to get what it wants. Be that your personal history or, uh, or a nation's history like we see here. The human heart is willing to rewrite history to get what it wants. That's what Israel's up to. And so what I think's incredible here is that despite the people's fear, Moses responds as a non-anxious presence with a calm exhortation. That's for you and me just as much as it was for Israel. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, look at 13 with me. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. I want to look at these four imperatives, these four commands Moses gives the people of Israel. First one, fear not. The most common command in the Bible. Fear not. Now, Consider what it means that emotions are being commanded here. Consider what that means for us. We live in a day where we have found our feelings, and this is a good thing, largely, but we live in a day where we have found our feelings and lost our mind. That's, how, that's, the, that's the age we live in. And, and so what does it mean for Moses to command their emotions, for the Lord to command your emotions? He wants to set you free from being victim to your own feelings and desires. And, and so this, is, this really matters because, uh, and don't hear what I'm not saying, I know what it's like to experience crippling discouragement and tyrannizing anxiety. I've experienced it. You ask me, I'll tell you stories. I know what that's like, and yet, the scriptures call us to this process of educating our emotions, which requires training and grace. This is why Augustine of Hippo said to He prayed this, command what you will, command what you will and give what you command. Command what you will, but give what you command. In other words, we need grace to obey these commandments. And so if you find yourself thinking, okay, that's helpful, I think, um, but what do I do in the moment when my fear has just crippled me? Well, the next command I think is helpful here. Stand firm. Hold your ground. Do not run away. This too shall pass. Those are all ways he could have, you could translate this, what he says here, remain steadfast. Now this isn't some kind of John Wayne rugged individualism. That's not what we're talking about here. There's no self-reliance. Remember, these commands are in the plural. He's commanding a community. Many of you know this, that redwoods, uh, redwood trees are the tallest trees in the world. Um, but many of you might not know that their roots are relatively shallow. 
They actually don't have a taproot that goes down very deep. And, and that's a big deal because they don't have a way to be anchored to the earth. Their roots go down only about 6 to 12 feet. And, and so <clears throat> if you know where, uh, where redwoods are located in California, they experience earthquakes and wind and fire and flooding, and yet they rarely topple over. What do we make of that? Well, the, the secret beneath the surface is that although redwoods are 500 tons and 350 feet up into the air, uh, they have these roots that only go down about 10 feet. But here's the trick. Their roots are intertwined with the redwoods all around them. And so when the wind comes and blows and they begin to teeter and totter, they tug and pull on the root systems of the other trees around them and it enables them to stand firm. Brothers and sisters, this is what Moses is exhorting this community to. Stand firm. Draw on those around you. I asked you last week to answer this question. Who are the people you show up for? Who are the people who show up for you? Sometimes you're in the the, the circumstance where you're tottering and you need somebody to hold you fast. Other times you'll have people around you who are tipping and they need you to draw on your strength, your, your firmness. This is a community command. This is how we endure our fears. It's not alone, but together. So it says to fear not, to stand firm, and to see. This is the third one. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Now notice, sight is the same sense that caused their fear and will now cure their fear. That's a big deal because uh, what we attend to over time might be the most important thing about us. What we attend to over time, what we give our attention to over time might be the most important things about us. But, but here's the problem is that when we're in a fear state, we scan the horizon for potential threats. Psychologists call this hypervigilance and it is exhausting. And some of you are trapped in a state like that. And, and what I mean by that is um, there, there's a rabbi who says it like this. Um, we don't see the world as, as it is. We see the world as we are. In other words, your story, your personality, your emotions, your character, your trauma, your community, your body, your experiences, they, they shape what you see in the world. And equally as important, they shape what you do not see. Do you remember Jesus' antidote to anxiety in Matthew 6? Do you remember the command, what he says? See the birds of the air. Look at them. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Your sight is the source of your fear, but it's also the source of your cure. It's the way out according to Moses and Jesus. See, see. But it matters what you see, what you're paying attention to. If you will look at the millions of miracles around you at any given moment, you will slowly begin to trust that all things come, not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. You'll trace his hand at work in the world around you. But you have to attend to the right things. And so finally, the fourth command from Moses here is to be silent. Be quiet. Or if you prefer, hush little baby, don't say a word. Now, the reason why I say that is there's different ways to translate that, that really important phrase there. And so what, what, what really we're talking about here is the calming, soothing effect of having a secure presence in your midst. The Lord looks to the people of Israel and he says something like this. 
I will fight for you. You can be calm. I will fight for you. You can be silent. I will fight for for you. You don't have to be fretful. So I don't know where you each are this morning, but some of you need to hear this. Where and how do you need to hear this? The Lord say, I will fight for you. You have only to be silent. As a therapist, this is how I'd ask the question, how are you over-functioning in your relationship with the Lord? Where do you need to just rest, receive and rest in Jesus alone as he's offered to us in the gospel? Where do you need him to fight for you and you get to calm down? Isaiah 30, 15 says it like this, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That's the exhortation here. And so these four commands, fear not, stand firm, see, and be silent are helpfully summed up in Francis Schaeffer's phrase, active passivity. That's what Moses is calling them to, active passivity. Now, active passivity is is choosing trust. That's the active part, but it's choosing trust. Active passivity is opening ourselves to God. Active passivity is yielding ourselves. It's not merely let go and let God. That's too passive. It's lean in and let God. Famous text around this time of year because it's, it's such a brilliant example of active passivity comes from uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus in Luke 138 when the angel comes to her and she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's active passivity. And so look at the way, the first way that Yahweh shows up for them. Look at verse 19. This is the Lord fighting for them. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. You see what the Lord does here? He steps in between them, between Egypt and The Egyptians, Pharaoh, the chariots coming behind them. He steps in behind them so that they're protected from this threat that's coming at them. He goes from going before them in leadership to going behind them to protect them. That's what happens in this moment. He becomes their shield, their fortress, their stronghold, their rock. In the book of Psalms, the most common metaphor is refuge. Why? Because God knows that what his people need is a is a secure base to launch out into the world from and a safe haven to come back to. And so God is that for them right now. We need security in our fears. But it wasn't just security, it was also continued leadership. Look at the end of verse 20, it says this, and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night. That's why I know this is happening in the dark. It lit up the night with, without one coming near the other all night long. So you have Egypt in darkness, you have Israel in light, you have the cloud going between them. But now what this means is they have to step into the sea by faith. Because the pillar is not in front of them leading them into the sea anymore. The pillar is behind them. They have to trust as they step out into the sea. They have to have confidence that, that can actually overcome this. And so God led them into the darkness, yet all night long they had his light. And so that brings us to the third point, fearsome at dawn. Fearsome at dawn. Verse 24, look with me. And in the morning watch, again, I said that's between 2 and 6 a.m. So, so this is getting towards the break of dawn. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. It's, it's important to note 
for a moment here. Um, the word chariot shows up, uh, I think, eight times in our text. The very means of Egypt's strength. This is what made them a formidable force. The very means of Israel or, or Egypt's strength was their undoing. This is one of the many great reversals throughout the story of Scripture. It goes on, and, and it says this in verse 25, And the Egyptians said, let us, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Notice who's bearing witness to the fighting of the Lord. It's not Israel, it's Egypt. They're the ones saying, Israel is now fearsome at dawn. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians, I think this is still true for us, in Philippians he says it like this in verse 128. He says to the church, you are not frightened in anything by your opponents. Think about that. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. And he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He might have been meditating on Exodus 14 when he wrote that to the Philippians. And, and so what I want you to hear in this is that our neighbors watch how we handle our fears, especially if they know you follow Jesus. Because they're asking, does this thing work for them? Like when COVID hits, are you buying up all the toilet paper too? Or because you follow Jesus, you have somebody who can provide for you when there's supply shortages, right? And so, and so our neighbors watch. And, and so in here, Egypt is the first one to bear witness to the truth that Israel has, a, has somebody fighting a champion on their side. It's Yahweh, which is exactly what the Lord was after. And so how does the Lord fight for them? Well, let's, as we close, let's read verses 27 through 31, the end of this text. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. This is where I get the word dawn. When the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. You see, God is the active agent in control of everything. He controls the sea. He controls the Egyptians. He controls, he, he's, he's, his providential hand is over all of this, which is a source of security for us. The text goes on in verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But, and this is a beautiful but, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Let's just, a little side note. Some people will say this is a, this is a marsh. Usually naturalistic commentators that don't want to uh, believe miracles still happen. They'll say that this was a marsh. Uh, marshes don't have the kind of water that creates walls on both sides of people. Uh, everywhere in the Bible, wall means wall here. It means big, tall, lots of water on both sides. This is the Red Sea. This is a giant body of water, very deep, that the Lord miraculously led the people of Israel through. This is really important for you who, who want to study the Bible. You have to be wary of people that don't believe the first verse of the Bible, which is, in the beginning, God. <laughs> if you don't believe that, the rest of it doesn't make any sense. Okay. Tangent over. Verse 30, thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and in chilling irony, because the Israelites were the ones wondering if there'd be enough graves in, in Egypt for them. In chilling irony, it says this, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31, Israel saw, remember the, the, the sense of sight. They saw the great power. Now, great power in the NIV is translated the mighty hand, and I think that's better because it's, this is important. 
the Israelites saw the mighty hand that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's look at those verbs again. Israel saw, they feared, and they believed. It's not their defiant high hands in verse 8 that's going to help them. But Israel saw the mighty hand of Yahweh rescuing them from the hands of the Egyptians. You see what's happening here? Hands. Israel didn't, they depended on their hands earlier when they marched out defiantly and that didn't work for them. But they moved to seeing the mighty hand of God setting them free from the hand of the Egyptians. This is what their eyes are seeing. And so sanity is the right response to reality. Israel has now finally the right, they're finally sane. The right response to reality is that they saw, they feared, and they believed Yahweh. So let's look at this fear piece. Now we know not to fight fire with fire, but can we fight fear with fear? Um, as, as I want to point out here in a moment and, and kind of unpack this, the fear of God is the antidote to the fear of everything else. To paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, when we won't fear God, we don't become fearless, we fear everything. Another way to say this is, look at verses 4 and 18. I said we'd come back here. He says this is his purpose statement. I will get glory. We're going to come back to that word. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The word glory shows up three times in this text. Three times. In Hebrew, it's the word kavod. It means heaviness or weightiness. This is what I think this means. As our fears have more weight, God becomes trivialized in our lives. But as God gets glory, as God becomes less trivial, our fears become more trivialized. So where do you give the weight in your life? What has the weightiness in your life? Your fears or the God who is the God of the Exodus that we see in this text this morning? And so for God to get glory, I wish I could preach another whole sermon just on this. For God to get glory is to become the center of your solar system so that it has enough mass, enough gravitas to, to hold everything else into orbit. But as soon as that gets displaced, everything goes crazy. And so what I want to be very cautious here about, though, is differentiating between two kinds of fear. Um, the, the Christian tradition has always said this. Because there is a fear of something that is against you, think tiger, think Mack truck that you just stepped out into I-4, like a fear of something that's against you, but there's a fear of something that's for you too. The best illustration um, I could give is the, the biblical, biblical one of fire from Exodus 3. I told you about this a few weeks ago, um, but another one would be, I, I'm a surfer. I love to surf, and there's something that happens in me when I go out and I paddle into a large wave. There is a terror that wells up inside me that is both horrifying and exhilarating at the same time because this thing could be it could be very destructive or it could or it could be the power that I ride to like some insane joy I think that's a good picture of the fear of the Lord so what I don't mean is that at some point the Lord becomes kind of this uh this like lapdog that we pet and think is all good we always have this sense that the Lord is both awesome and awful he's both alluring he draws us to himself, but he's also overwhelming in his greatness and glory. That's the fear of the Lord. That's what Israel experienced here. And it happens to be the only thing that can set you free from all the other fears in your life. And so they see the Lord working, and that fear sets them free. But here's the problem. The devil promotes a fear of God that causes people to flee from him. 
Some of you hear me saying that right now. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the the fear that the Spirit of God produces. It's an opposite kind of fear that actually dazzles us with God and draws us near to Him. That's the kind of fear of God that sets us free. And so the fear of God is the antidote. It, It casts out all other fears because it's an amazement that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That's why the fear of God casts out all other fears. Humble awe before God is the antidote to the fears that plague us. Let's end where the text ends in verse 31. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now I get why I would say that they believed Yahweh, they believed in the Lord, but why Moses? Because Moses was their mediator. Moses was their mediator. Moses was leading them where he'd already been. Do you remember Exodus 2? Moses himself was rescued by the Lord by being brought through water. Now, Israel is being led by Moses to be rescued by the Lord by being brought through water. He's their mediator. He goes before them. They are experiencing something that, they're entering into something with Moses that they've already experienced. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says that they were baptized into Moses when they went through the Red Sea. Because Moses is their mediator. Let me give you another proof why that, I believe that's the case. Look at verse 15. This is in the midst of Israel losing their minds. It says, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Yahweh's speaking to Moses. If you remember a little bit ago, Israel's the ones who cry to Moses. Moses didn't, I'm sorry, cry to the Lord. Moses didn't cry to the Lord. Why does the Lord rebuke him for Israel's unbelief? Well, because this, their unbelief was not his fault, but it was his responsibility. Because Moses was their mediator. And so this verse at the end here, uh, verse 31, it reminds us of John 14, verse 1, where, where Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, don't be afraid. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Doesn't that sound like verse 31? They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is a greater Moses. He was fearless from dusk through the darkness and into dawn. Fearless, undaunted. From cross through burial to resurrection. Verse 31 says, Israel saw the mighty hand of the Lord and that mighty hand was nailed to a cross in the man Jesus. And so on that cross, Jesus was plunged into the deepest darkness of all because it was the darkness of being alone. For the first time, all alone in that darkness and yet Jesus feared not. He stood firm and he was silent on the cross on the cross as he, as he waited patiently with active passivity, trusting that this would turn out for his resurrection, that the Lord, his father, would fight for him and lift him up from the dead. And so Jesus now shows us that he's been raised up and the, the mighty hand of the Lord is a nail-scarred hand. It's a nail-scarred hand that even now is open and extended to you to cast your fears into it. You know First Peter 5. First Peter 5 says, humble yourselves, Under the mighty hand of God, at the proper time, he will exalt you. Casting your anxieties, your fears on him because he cares for you. How can we possibly trust that he cares for us unless the cross is true? You see, we come to Jesus with humble awe at what he did for us because your sins, although not his fault, are his responsibility. That's why uh, the, the prophet Micah in Micah 7.19 says it like this. He's thinking about the Exodus. He says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what he did to the chariots 
and the Egyptian soldiers, and he does it to your sins. And so the hope that we have here is that when we see King Jesus who fought for us on the cross and who is raised again now to newness of life, we have only to be silent, to receive and rest in him alone. And so now to the question, are you afraid of the dark? We can say with the fearsome the fearsomeness of dawn of, of Jesus' resurrection, we can say that we fear not. We stand firm. We see the salvation of our Lord Jesus. He will fight for us. And so we can only be silent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet you saved them for your name's sake, that you might make known your mighty power. We get salvation, you get the reputation of being the kind of God who saves, who rescues the rebellious. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's in his name we pray, amen.